0: So we've been in the study of 1 John, and the plan was to keep going in our study of 1 John. But Friday, the course of our nation changed a little bit, um, somewhat considerably. And so uh, Thursday, I had more than half of a sermon prepared for you guys in 1 John. And Friday evening, around 4 or 5 o'clock, I thought... Okay, God, you've laid something heavy on my heart, and I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to seek your word for answers about all these changes that we see in the culture around us. And what, what it means for us, and how, most importantly, I guess, how we should respond uh, to these drastic changes. Uh, how we should change, if at all. So imagine... One day, you're driving down the street when all of a sudden, traffic just grinds to a standstill. I know that none of you have ever actually had that happen here in Seattle, so just try to imagine it. And it's not even a rush hour, right? And in fact, the reason you're out and about at this time of day is because you know that everybody else is at work, so you can beat rush traffic. Uh, and so maybe you're thinking, wow, did did, somebody have this, did everybody have the same idea that I had uh, you know, for beating rush traffic? No, because most people really are still at work. And so sh- slowly but surely, traffic starts to move, but still, it's just like inching along. And you're getting impatient, You're getting frustrated with this situation because you, you have places to be. You have things to do. You have a tight schedule. You have people to see. And so you're getting frustrated because nobody else in all of this traffic line could possibly have as many important things to do as as you do. And so as traffic starts moving along, you notice that the right lane's moving and the left lane isn't, so what do you do? you change you get into the right lane and then what happens? <laughs> Le- yeah, right stops, left goes. As soon as you move over, you know, the other lane starts moving again. What is going on? And so half an hour later, or so you reach the front of this line and you realize what's been going on. There was a car accident. And somebody was taken away in an ambulance after being freed from their car by the jaws of life, this machine that a hydraulic machine that cuts away big chunks of a car, you know, when somebody's trapped inside. And you're thinking to yourself, man, what nerve that person must have had to be driving like that anyway. Oh, it wasn't their fault. Okay, well, still, what nerve somebody had to be driving poorly on a day like this, to slow your day down. What took the EMT workers so long to get this guy free? What took the police so long to clear traffic so that we could be moving? And this is all really easy to say from the perspective of a car that's been waiting in line in traffic, except we may not have understood absolutely everything that there is to know about this scenario. We may or may not have understood why traffic had to slow down in order that somebody's life could be saved. There are a million things that could have caused this accident. And it's actually maybe a little bit presumptuous of us if we get frustrated at the people who are involved unless we know absolutely every single little detail about it. And it may have seemed... Like the police could, or maybe should, have cleared traffic more quickly. Like they were just being you know, lazy, sitting around, you know, doing what cops do, just taking their time. But the truth is, we don't know everything that they had to do before they could clear traffic and get stuff moving again. And sometimes it's like this with God. I'd say a lot of the time it can be like this with God. Sometimes it doesn't look like God's doing anything. Sometimes it doesn't look like he's doing the things that we think or expect him to be doing. Doesn't he see the things that we see? Doesn't he want to cater to us? Doesn't he want to make our lives as easy as possible? Can't he just do something to get everything moving smoothly again and comfortable? Where is he? God needs to get on the ball. Where is he? Well, I think that this is very likely exactly how the prophet Habakkuk felt as he watched the world around him slipping into moral decline, and as he watched the enemies of God, the Babylonians, coming in, and not only coming in, but prospering as they do, and his people, the Israelites in Judah falling away into sin. All of them, their enemies and the Israelites themselves, mocking God as they do it. Now, like most of the books in the Bible who are written by, that are written by minor prophets, um, the book of Habakkuk is named after the prophet who wrote it. Uh, and his name is kind of interesting. Not just because it sounds like you need to say gazumtite after you say it, But because of what his name means, the Hebrew word, Habakkuk, means uh, the, the root word means to embrace. And so the picture is of a wrestler who is embracing his opponent as they contend for position. And Habakkuk was a prophet who wrestled with God through his prayers in the midst of this enormous moral decline on a national level and maybe as we see our nation doing the same thing slipping into widespread moral decline maybe you're wrestling with god too in numbers chapter 12 verse 20 uh, verse 6 the lord says to aaron and miriam if there's a prophet among you i the lord make myself known to him in a vision i speak with him in a dream so god caused the prophets to see things, in visions, and in dreams, so that they would clearly understand the truth that God wanted to communicate to his people, starting with the prophet. And what they saw, they would convey to the people and to us through the words of scripture. And this wasn't something to be viewed as something of of an honor or a high privilege as much as It was probably something of a burden for them. The prophets were burdened with heavy spiritual things, the heavy spiritual things that God was showing to them. It was spiritually intense stuff, often involving clear visions of impending judgments. The book of Habakkuk was also written to declare a coming judgment. And these warnings that the prophets were giving, receiving from God and giving to the people, they were so severe, so intense, and the hearts of the prophets were so broken by them that they couldn't contain the message that God had given them. Jeremiah, he once thought, you know what God I'm done. I, I'm, I'm just stepping away from my responsibilities as a prophet. I'm, I'm done sharing your message. And God basically said, well, I'm not done with you. And so he gives uh, Jeremiah a message anyway. And Jeremiah ends up writing, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. This was a heavy burden to get these visions from God. And Habakkuk receives a heavy, heavy message from God. And as we start his book, as we start this book, it sounds almost like a conversation. Because what we'll see is Habakkuk will say something, he'll pray, and God will respond. And Habakkuk will pray, and God will respond. And then Habakkuk will pray. And that's how the book ends. So this is going to be a three-week study, um, leading right up to uh, w- one of our vacations that we're taking this year for a quick week. Uh, when we get back, we will resume our study of 1 John, but for the next three weeks, we're going to be studying this book. And so, again, as we, as we start the book, uh, it almost seems like it's starting mid-conversation. We read this, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Have any of you guys ever prayed a prayer like that? Have you ever felt like that? God, how long am I going to pray and you don't hear me? I know I can, I can really relate to this. Like I said, it's, it's almost like this book starts in the middle of a conversation. And what that tells us is that this is not the first time that Habakkuk has prayed to God. It's not the first time. You see, Habakkuk had seen the moral decline of Judah. He'd seen the nation slipping deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. He had seen them become more complacent, more casual about their faithfulness to God. He'd seen his people, his nation, falling away from God. And what had he done about it? He had prayed. He'd prayed about it. And when nothing seemed to be happening, when it seemed like God wasn't listening to him, what did he do? He prayed some more. And when it still didn't look like God was doing anything about it, he prayed some more. And finally, he reaches this point of frustration. We can feel the frustration in this text. And he cries out, how long, God, am I going to call out for help to you, and you're not going to hear me? You're not going to do anything about it. Was God not listening? Was God not interested in preserving the righteous, preserving his people? Was God just ignoring them? Was he turning their back on them? Was he asleep at the wheel? When the prophet Elijah challenged the priests of Baal to bring fire down from heaven, what did he do when they prayed to their false gods and nothing happened? He mocked them. He mocked them. In one of the funniest verses in the entire Bible, he says, Cry, he's speaking to these, to these idolaters. He says, Cry aloud, for, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, I love that, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. First Kings chapter 18, verse 27. And so what we see here is the tables have turned, as God's enemies were now taunting, God's people mocking God, mocking His word, as they closed in on Judah. And Habakkuk responded by protesting to God about God's apparent inaction from Habakkuk's perspective. How many of you guys know that it is okay to air your grievances with God? How many of you know it's okay to get frustrated with God? Trust me, he can take it. He is all-powerful. He can take your most frustrated cries your deepest grievances. In fact, he doesn't even hide the fact that sometimes his people do get frustrated enough with him that they start airing their grievances publicly. After all, how many, how many of you guys have read through the Psalms? And how many Psalms do we find this type of stuff in? Man, it's all over the place in the Psalms. God, how long are your enemies going to prosper? How long until you, you step in and save the day? It's all over the place in the Psalms. And this is the right thing to do airing your grievances before God, your frustrations, is the right thing to do. To take our petitions before him, before his throne. Far too many people trust in man, trust in themselves, trust in a political party to bring about change, to keep them feeling content. And so they protest to... to, government or they protest to man or they protest on facebook or wherever they take their protests public and it's easy to think that reformation starts with having a bullhorn and just a never say quit attitude because that's what we see in the movies that's what we see on tv you know somebody's leading the charge with a bullhorn and and people are following him maybe we should be doing exactly the same thing but that's not what habakkuk does Instead, he takes his protest straight to the throne of the sovereign God before whom the nations of the earth shake and tremble. Which is the best thing for him to do with his protests. And yet, on the surface, it looks like it was all for naught. It looks like there's no effect, no change, no no, no, no redirection in the course of action that the nation is taking. And I imagine that all of us can relate to that feeling to some extent or another. We've been praying. We've been petitioning God. We've been taking our protests before the throne of God. And it looks like nothing is happening. As we've seen a tsunami of moral decline racing across every square inch of our nation, a lot of us have been in prayer. Many have been in prayer. Many were praying that the Supreme Court would hold the line and protect the institution of marriage, or what's left of it anyway. And I hope that your response on Friday was to take your protests, if you had any, before the throne of God before you took them to Facebook. We grumble amongst one another, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that's part of community. You know, oh, I'm so frustrated if we can just get it out of ourselves and talk, talk it through. That helps sometimes. But make sure that you're also bringing your heartache and your brokenness and your frustration and your grievances and maybe your anger before the throne of God first. And if you've been doing that, maybe you feel like you just can't do it much longer. Because maybe it seems like God is just standing by doing absolutely nothing while our country falls deeper and deeper into sin and reveals a deeper and deeper hatred for God. And maybe you just feel like giving up. But look at what Habakkuk says next as the complaints just start coming in one wave after another. He says this as we continue, verse 3. He says, "'Why do you make me see iniquity?' And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Why do you make me see, God? Why do you make me see this stuff? Why do you make me see this moral decay in our land? Amongst my people, your people. All the while, God, you're just standing there doing nothing about it basically what he's saying here when all said and done however our theology that is our understanding about god his nature his attributes how he works our theology has to direct us back to two primary truths that help us to answer this type of question the first truth that we have to remember is that god is sovereign That means that he is in control. He sets the rules. He's above it all. He's in control of it all. It means that he either causes or allows everything that happens. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing surprises him. There's nothing that's too big for him to handle. And there's nothing that's too small for him to care about. He is sovereign over it all. He either causes or allows everything that happens. That is to say that God ordains every event, every action, every movement within the realm of His creation. And it's all His. It's all His. And we see the evil increasing in our land. There's no question about that. What we don't see, however, is what God has not allowed to happen, because he hasn't allowed it to happen. He either causes or allows everything that happens. We can be sure that there are some things that would have happened if he didn't have his restraining hand in the earth. So there are a lot of things that we don't see that God has not allowed to happen. And so when evil not only seems to prevail, but seems to be growing in power, growing in influence, what that tells us is simply that the restraining hand of God is being lifted. And yes, when God removes his restraining hand, we see that humanity, that society that the world is capable of evil that once upon a time was beyond our wildest imagination. And so while evil is becoming more and more and more prevalent, more and more rampant in our country, we have to remember that God is sovereign over it. He is still in control. He's not asleep at the wheel. He, de- he hasn't turned his back on creation He hasn't walked away from it, leaving us to our own devices and our own desires. He's keenly aware of everything that's going on. And I think, honestly, it would be pretty ridiculous for us to think that we're more offended by it than he is. That's the first theological truth that we have to remember, that God is sovereign. Secondly, the, the second theological truth that we have to keep in mind is that in accordance with God's sovereign rule over every detail in the universe, He has appointed you and He has appointed me to live right here, right now. He's appointed us. He's put us in this time, knowing what was coming. In Acts 17:26, we read this: "He, God. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Yeah, our nation is in steep moral decline right now. Maybe it's not even a steep decline. Maybe it's just a cliff at this point. Or that's how it feels. Yeah, things are getting bad. Yes, the evil, the depravity of humanity seems to be increasing rapidly. But God has appointed, he has determined you and me to live in the midst of one of the places where this evil is becoming widely rampant and celebrated. You and I exist right here and right now because that is what God has determined from all of eternity. This is part of his plan With his people. He knew this time would come. And in his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom. He appointed us to be right in the midst of all of it. In a time in which a nation which was formerly Christian. Or thought to be Christian. Is being swept over by a wave of spiritual darkness and sin. God has chosen you and me to be here. To see it. Habakkuk says, "Why do you make me see this stuff?" Because God determined that Habakkuk would see this stuff. We might be saying the same thing. God, why are you making us see this stuff? Because that's what God has determined. And not just to see it, but also to be broken-hearted about it. To be filled with distress and sorrow on behalf of our nation. And to pray for its restoration. To pray for revival. To pray for people to come to know the God who can save them. Not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. We know that while sin might become more and more acceptable before men, there's no court in the entire world that can make what God deems as sin to be less than God's judgment. It is still sin. It never becomes more acceptable before God. It might become more acceptable before men. It won't before God. We know that the Supreme Court ruling that same-sex marriage is okay doesn't make it okay any more than saying that abortion is okay and justifies slaughtering 50 million children. And so what do we do? We do what Habakkuk did. We pray. We pray for our nation. And yet, if if we've been praying, we might be tempted to think that our our prayers haven't had any effect. Haven't reversed the course or changed the course that, that our nation seems to be on. What's up with that, God? That's what Habakkuk's asking And so he sums up what he sees, writing in verse 4. He says, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I I just want to say, you know, the first thing I'm I'm thinking is, wow, that sounds just like America and and the rest of Western civilization. Sounds like that's what he's talking about. But he's not. And I don't know about you, but I I do find a bit of comfort and encouragement, maybe strength, in, in knowing that the situation that's going on here in America isn't something that's never happened before. It's not unprecedented. It's not anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's happened before. The law of the land of Judah had become worthless because it had been so thoroughly corrupted that it now worked uh, almost, if not entirely, exclusively for the benefit of the wicked rather than the righteous. That sounds like America. We see the same thing happening in our world today. Justice is stifled by the courts who can't seem to execute justice any more than they can sprout wings and fly. The judges of our land defend the rights of pornographers, of pedophiles, to do their evil deeds, but they close down a business that simply wants to act in accordance, conduct their business in accordance with the convictions that they have before God. Where's the justice? Habakkuk's asking the same thing. The wicked outnumber the righteous. They surround us. They're louder than us. And so, whatever justice there is that goes forth, let's just put some quotation marks around justice because that's not really justice at all. It's a perversion of justice, it's a mockery of what real justice is. And when we see this type of thing going on, when we see justice corrupted and perverted, And for it just to be getting worse and worse and worse, it's easy for us to feel just like Habakkuk did when he prayed this prayer to God. It's easy for us to think that God is absent or lazy or just doesn't care. It's easy for us to think that if God really understood what was going on, he would have done something about it by now. He would have taken action. In fact, he'd probably be doing the same action that that we have in mind if he would just stop listening to the choirs of angels for two seconds and, and look at the world right it 's so easy for us to, to to think this, but we have to understand something. God is sovereign, and he is at work in our world right now he 's at work in our nation right now. He knows what 's going on. He hates how rampant. The wickedness, the evil, the sin in our country is becoming. He hates it. And just like a a driver who gets stuck in traffic and has no idea what the holdup is, we have to understand that we don't see the big picture either. We don't see the big picture of, of everything that God is doing. We don't know all the details. We don't see the end from the beginning and everything in between. In fact, truth be told... Most of the time, we can barely see the forest for the trees if we're lucky, at best. God works in his own time and in his own ways. And while it's easy for us to grow impatient, to grow frustrated, maybe to grow angry as we wait for God to do something, we have to understand that God is doing something. He is doing something. Whether we realize it or not, He is working to accomplish His purposes. God has the wisdom and God has the power to reverse the tsunami wave of wickedness that's sweeping over our land. But He rarely, if ever, does things exactly in accordance with the way we think they should be done. The truth is that most of the time when it seems like God isn't doing anything, He's already in the middle of his work. He started a long time, before we even started praying about it, he was already working on it. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 tells us what God does when immorality sweeps across the land, when hearts are turning away from him. Romans chapter 1 24 says that he gives them up In the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. He then goes on to give them over to vile, self degrading passions, including homosexuality. That's in verse 26. And so that's the second wave of God's action which tells us that maybe God has been at work in our land and maybe he's already in the second stage of executing holy and righteous judgment against our country. If Romans is any indication, this certainly seems to be the case. And so we get a sense of Habakkuk's frustration. We can relate. In fact, maybe we'd be praying the exact same thing to God. If not, maybe we should be. And he's not praying for God's judgment. He's not praying for an outpouring of, of God's wrath on, on his people. He's praying for the salvation of his fellow countrymen. Like us, maybe he's, he's something of a, of a patriot. And he's hungry for revival. But God has an answer. And this is where it gets very interesting. God's going to respond now to Habakkuk's prayer, and he says this. Let's just start with verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Do you love that? I love that because it's so easy for us to just... Becomes so hyper-focused with what we see, where we are, and to keep our, our, our nose and our, and our gaze to the ground. But God says to Habakkuk, lift up your gaze. Lift up your eyes. Look further than where you are right now. Don't just look to the horizon. Look beyond your own horizon. It would be easy for us to, to wonder why God is tolerating all this stuff in our country. And we could totally miss the fact that there is revival going on in many areas around the world. Areas where the gospel hasn't flourished in recent centuries the way that it has in the northern hemisphere or, or here in western civilization. There's revival going on in other nations. God is not just concerned with America. God loves the world. He's concerned with every nation. He's working in every nation. And then God reveals a profound truth to Habakkuk. That even if he were to reveal detail by detail exactly what his plan was, exactly how he intended to work and what he intends to do, it would be more than Habakkuk could handle or, or believe. And so what God, does, what God says next here as he reveals part of his plan would, would sound impossible to somebody like Habakkuk, to somebody who had seen what Habakkuk had seen. And so God continues in the next several verses through verse uh, 11, 6 to 11. He says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's pretty fair to say that this must have sounded pretty impossible to Habakkuk. Because God's telling him, what am I doing about this? I'm raising up the dreaded Chaldeans. Wait, what? God's raising up this wicked people? Those evil Babylonians who hate God and who worship their own might? God is raising up wicked people to come against his own people? God's telling him that it's not as though he's sitting by doing nothing about it. He's doing something. He's doing something all right. He's not using the method for bringing about the greatest good that Habakkuk might have had in mind. He just wanted a revival. He just wanted God to pour his spirit out and for people to turn their hearts back to him. So it's not what he had in mind. In fact, he probably never would have even considered raising up this people, the Chaldeans, as a possible option for God. But that's the thing. God uses things that we would never even think of to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Now some of you know that I sell sell clothes on the side to help supplement our, our income. And a few of you know uh, that I intentionally look for some of the ugliest clothing imaginable. In fact, one of the things I'll do when I find something real nasty is I'll send it to Eric. Send him a picture. Take a picture of it. And I'll, hey, check this out. You want to wear this on Sunday? <laughs> and the reason that I, I look for ugly clothing is because for, for whatever reason, in some way, those clothes, uh, they, they sell you know, on eBay. They, they sell. Um, they're useful to someone. And that someone might be someone who has no fashion sense or, you know, who still thinks they're in the 1970s or whatever. But, you know, whatever. That's fine. They're, they're still useful. But similarly, God will use what looks to be useless. He'll take something that appears to be useless and he'll make it usable for his own purposes. Because he can accomplish his purposes In ways that you and I would never even think of, would never even imagine. He's God. He's God, and we're not. He sees the end from the beginning, and we can't. It's His universe, it's not ours. He's God. We're not. And the things that God is doing in response to our prayers might not line up with exactly what we think God should be doing about the situation. It might not be lining up exactly with our expectations for what God should do. But we have to remember that everything that happens, everything that happens is in accordance with the design of his eternal plan. According to Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This reminds us that God is in sovereign control of the earthly governments. But beyond that, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24 tells us that a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? So even when the greatest armies on earth assemble and march off to war, they are still under the dominion and direction of our sovereign Lord. This is exactly the case with the nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans. Why were they growing in number? Why were they strengthening for this invasion of Judah? Because God was raising them up for that purpose. But the only thing that might be more shocking than than all this was the fact that Habakkuk probably should have known that this was going to happen. Because God had said that he would do this a hundred years earlier, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 39, verse 6, we read, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And that was a hundred years before Habakkuk lived. So it shouldn't be that shocking to him. And just as this was the way that God dealt with nations then, I believe scripture teaches us that that's the way God deals with nations today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always hated wickedness, He has always worked to accomplishing His purposes, and He has always urged humanity to look to the cross, to repent. And look to the cross and to believe in his son whom he sent to pay the price of sin for anyone who will believe in him as he is the only mediator between God and man. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we examine the state of our nation and all of western civilization, we don't have the benefit that Habakkuk had. Of having a direct revelation from God to understand exactly what God is about to do. But as we examine scripture, we can know that God cares. And we can know that God is capable of raising up even his enemies to discipline his own children for their benefit, for their good, for their purity the majority of Americans have renounced the Christian faith. We get it. God gets it too. He's keenly aware of it. And we can know that when we pray, God hears us. He's he's listening. He cares. And we can know with all confidence that God is more offended by the sins of our nation, than any of us are, combined. He sees how our public schools are basically indoctrinating our youth into the godless religion of secular humanism. He sees how our courts are sheltering the wicked, protecting the the evil things that are going on in our country, and simultaneously burdening the righteous. He sees that. He sees how our courts are sheltering the, the wicked, burdening the righteous, he also sees how the majority of churches in our country have become virtually indistinguishable from the world, as our culture has tried for the past 100, 150 years to fuse the gospel with the American dream. You know, there, there's not a reputable uh, scholar of theology on the planet who would deny that the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, it's no good news at all, originated here in America. America. This is where it started. This is where it came from. It started with people trying to fuse the American dream and the gospel. And at this point, the prosperity gospel is the most prevalent form of preaching that you can find in Africa and in many areas in South America. Churches in our country have spread poison across the nations in the name of Jesus and money. And God is very interested in doing something about that. He's very interested in showing us that there's a cost in following him. He's very interested in showing us that there's no such thing as earthly treasure, really. It's not coming with us. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to get us into heaven. It's not going to come with us into heaven. He's very interested in purifying his people, purifying his church, purifying the doctrine that comes forth from the pulpits across America. So what's God up to? Why is God allowing so much evil in our country? At least part of the the answer to that question is that God is purifying us. Do you believe, Romans 8, 28, God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who uh, who love him and who are called according to his purposes? Do you believe that? That's what God's doing. Causing all things, not some things, not a few things. He's causing all things to work together for the good of his people. Just like he promises in his word. And I would say that once upon a time in America, it was not much of a sacrifice to claim to be a Christian. Pretty much anybody could claim to be a Christian in this country. But that's never the way that God designed Christianity to be. It's supposed to cost us something. It's supposed to cost us everything. And so here we have some issues coming to the surface in our nation that certainly seem to be separating the wheat from the tares, so to speak. So will not the seriousness of the repercussions of this matter cause God's people to be humbled? Cause God's people... To cry out to God, cause God's people to seek his face, leading us to repentance and ultimately to a deeper, more meaningful, more committed faith in him. The only way for us to really learn that God is in control is for us to feel like it's out of control and to look back and say, okay, he, he did have that situation under control. See, the issue isn't whether or not God is working. He is. The issue really is us. His people. Are we catching what God's trying to teach us? Are we trusting that God not only can bring some good out of this, but that He promises that He is using this for the good of His people? Do we believe that He's with us through the storm? If so, what are we afraid of? What do we have to fear? And so Habakkuk, he's he's listened to what God has said. And I don't know if it made a whole lot of sense initially, at least at the time, but he does come around. And so he responds to God before offering up more prayers. That'll start next week. He responds to God saying this, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk comes to the realization that God is sovereign, that God is holy, that God is good, and that his purposes are from eternity. See, this decision to, to raise up Judah's enemies, to raise up God's enemies, to raise up the Babylonians to attack and to dismantle Judah. It wasn't a, a decision that God just made, you know, uh, you know what, come to think of it, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just change my mind here. I, you know, it wasn't a decision that he made in haste. Habakkuk knows that he's from eternity, that he's good, that he's sovereign, that he loves his people. And thus Habakkuk can say with confidence, we shall not die. Yeah, things are getting ugly and things are going to get uglier, but God's with us, so we're going to make it. In light of the recent decision handed down by the Supreme Court, listen, there is hope to be found. God has not abandoned us. He doesn't abandon his people. This hasn't taken them by surprise, and we have an unprecedented opportunity at this moment in history. You and I have an unprecedented opportunity to respond with gospel-fueled grace and compassion with our friends and neighbors who will see that we are maintaining and even finding strength in our faith, even though it may cost us dearly, dearly. And that, that does say something to people. We may not have an easy road ahead of us, but we have to remember that as the religious climate in our nation gets darker and darker and darker, the darker the night, the greater the opportunity the true church has to be a light in the darkness. Given that we have nothing to be afraid of, let's just make sure that we're putting some, some big principles into action here. Number one, that we love Our neighbors. The greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, that you love your neighbors as you love yourself. We need to put that into action. And we also need to put the principle of living at peace with others into action. Paul tells the Romans who were, trust me, they were living in a lot more trying times than these. Depravity was much more widespread in Roman culture than it is here. And Paul said to the Romans, Romans chapter 12:18, if possible so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. With everyone. Not just with the people who are, you know, somewhat like you but you differ on this one point. With everyone. I would urge all of us, myself included, to strive to exercise love and compassion without compromising our faith and values. It is possible to have compassion without compromising. Jesus did it. And he's in us. God is sovereign over everything that happens. And God is sovereign over this. So trust him. No, I mean I mean really really trust in him. He's got it under control. Given the current religious climate in our country, praise the Lord that there is no more room to straddle the fence. There is no more room for somebody to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and to be claiming both as their home. You can't do that anymore. Thank you, Lord. I, I, I mean that. That's, that's awesome. There is no more living half for the world and half for Jesus. But there is room to trust in Jesus more. There's always room to trust him more. So go ahead and put all your eggs in this one basket that you will trust him until your final heartbeat That you will live for Him no matter what may come. Go ahead. Cry out to Him if you have to. If you're frustrated, talk to Him about it. If you're angry, talk to Him about it. Air your grievances. Air your frustrations with Him. He can take it. Wrestle with Him. He can handle it. And embrace Him. Habakkuk means to embrace. Like wrestling. So wrestle with him if you have to. And embrace him. Commit yourself to walking more closely with him that you may become more and more purified by him. He has ordained all these things for a purpose. A purpose that we wouldn't expect and that our minds probably can't understand 99.999% of the time. But here's what we can understand. We can understand that God is sovereign. We can understand that he's in control of every molecule in the universe right now as he always has been and as he always will be. And that he has ordained. This is the second thing we can understand. We can understand that God has, is sovereign and that he has ordained that you and I exist right here, right now for his glory. For his glory. And we can know That he is causing all things to work together for his people, for the good of his people. We have nothing to fear because he's with us. And whatever may come, he will never leave us. His purposes will never fail. Nobody will thwart his purposes, nothing will thwart his purposes. He will use this as he uses everything else for his ultimate glory. And for the good of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we just lay our brokenheartedness before you. And I know that some of us were pretty frustrated a couple days ago. Myself included. And Lord, I pray that we would seek you. And bring our protests and our frustrations and our grievances to you. Trusting in you, Lord. Knowing that you are in control. Knowing that you're in aware, Or that you are aware of, of all the things that are, uh, that are going on in our country. You knew that this decision would come. You knew this day would come. So teach us, Lord, to trust that you've got it all under control. Lord, we thank you that you have ordained us to live right here and right now. And that's a hard thing for us to say sometimes. But we know that you are good. We know that you are holy. We know that you have a purpose and a plan that will not be thwarted. So teach us, Lord, to see it as a privilege to live in this day and age and to see these things. But also, Lord, protect us Strengthen us to, to stand against the values of the world and yet to remain compassionate toward them, reaching out with the gospel, being faithful to you and what you've called us to do. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was so much-